As you're opening, as you are opening in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, uh, let me just say as you're doing so how much I enjoy singing the Psalms. Our church has a pretty similar rhythm to yours. In fact, there's a, there's a joke that we're kind of a Dutch Reformed church hiding out in Florida. Uh, we sing two psalms, two hymns in every service. We go through the Heidelberg uh, rather consistently. And I often tell people, I often have to tell people why it is that we sing from the psalms. When you think about it, who is the best songwriter in history? It's God. And he's given us poetry and even uh, inspired it in such a way that his people could sing it. And they sang it and we sing it. And as we read through the psalms and sing through the psalms, what a wonderful thought it is to sing God's own word back to him. Uh, beautiful privilege uh, that it is. So with that in mind, if you would now please look in your Bibles at Colossians chapter 1. We'll be reading together verses 24 through 29. The title of sermon is is him we proclaim. This is God's word once more. Now I rejoice my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Thus far again, the reading of God's word. Let's pray once more. Dear Holy Spirit, we are weak and helpless. You are strong and able. As we look to you now in your word, we ask you to help us to understand what it means not only to be united to Christ for the sake of our salvation, but also to be united to Christ for the sake of our calling in this world. And as we find our place and station, O Lord, we ask that you give us grace to be faithful until that very last and final day when all of us, no matter how we have served you with our lives, hope that we might hear from your own lips that glorious reception of well done, good and faithful servant. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Has the Apostle Paul gone too far? I wonder if you've read through this text before, it strikes you uh, that Paul says things here uh, that are kind of hard to take in, hard to believe, almost hard to take seriously, and one could easily wonder, has the Apostle Paul gone too far? Uh, He says, even in this first verse alone, two things that are striking and hard to take in, hard to believe. Number one, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. Stop there. Who says that? Who do you know that rejoices in sufferings? Who do you know that says uh, something along the lines of, hey, I'm going on vacation next week. Where are you going to go? I don't know. What are you going to do? Well, I'm hoping to suffer some. People don't think in those categories. 
when people go through hard times, when people suffer, all they want is out of those hard times and out of their sufferings. In fact, it's often our very disposition to simply survive the things that we suffer, hoping to get on the other side of those sufferings. But Paul here says that he actually rejoices in his sufferings. That's a bit much to take in. Who does that and why? Well, just hold on to that. I think it'll make sense by the time we get to the end. But not only does Paul say that he rejoices in his sufferings, uh, that's just a bit hard to process, but the next piece is even bigger and sounds virtually heretical because he says that his sufferings are in some part filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Hold on a second. I didn't know there was something lacking in Christ's afflictions. I didn't know there was something missing in the life and work of Jesus Christ. What is Paul here saying? Has Paul lost his mind? Uh, has Paul backslidden in his theology? <clears throat> is Paul now suggesting that there is something lacking in the redemptive, atoning work of Jesus Christ, that what Jesus did at the cross was actually not sufficient to save us entirely and completely. <clears throat> Might we say it like this, for those uh, who heartily love and embrace the Protestant understanding of the gospel that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has Paul now backslidden from Geneva to Rome? Is he now saying that, well, Christ did most of it, but I've got to finish it off and I've got to do it by suffering. Our Roman Catholic friends actually appeal to this text to suggest that Christ has not completed it all, and therefore uh, you need to suffer some too in order to be saved. He will do a good bit of it, and you do the rest. That's just one of the texts they base that doctrine on. So as Paul, <clears throat> to put it bluntly, has Paul lost his mind? And he's now suggesting that not only does he enjoy suffering, but that somehow Paul himself is finishing off what Christ failed to do. Well, the answer in a very profound way is no. Paul is not here contradicting what he said in famous places like Galatians 1, 8, 9, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you any other gospel than what we have proclaimed let him be accursed. Paul is not accursing himself. He is not preaching a new gospel. He is not contradicting the gospel that he has already proclaimed and even already stated earlier in this book, where he affirms that Christ's work is sufficient for our salvation. But it's not enough to simply say, as we so often do, this is what a text doesn't mean. If you're going to do justice to it, you have to talk about what it does mean. So what is he positively in actually saying when he does say that not only does he suffer and find joy in it, <clears throat> but that in his flesh he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, something is lacking. <clears throat> and Paul is filling it up. So what is that? Well, this is where we slow down for a minute and find something rather uh, beautiful and remarkable taking place in the life, the ministry, uh, the words and works of Paul. Okay? Uh, so Paul, I'm going to suggest, to make it hopefully rather simple and plain, is speaking from the point of view of his union with Christ. 
Paul is united to Christ in such a way that he sees the very life that he lives as a life lived in union with Jesus Christ. He says it in Galatians 2.20, right? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul sees himself as someone who has died and he now lives in Christ. His whole life is defined by Christ in such a way that even his sufferings that have come by the providence of God, he sees in union with Christ. But this ought not to strike us uh, too strangely because this is exactly the way Paul was told to begin thinking about his life and identity from the first day he met Jesus. When Paul is Saul in Acts 9 and he's on his anti-mission, when he is a anti-missionary trying to arrest and take captive those who are proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus strikes him down and blinds him. And he says to him uh, some of the most comforting words in the entire New Testament when he says to Saul the persecutor, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? That's not what he said. I do that all the time. I'll misquote it just to see like who caught it. So if you thought that was okay, read your Bible more. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The bedrock in the New Testament's vocabulary of the idea of union with Christ is that when Jesus confronts Saul, he says to Saul, what you are doing to them, you are doing to me. You're not simply persecuting my church, you are persecuting me because now as a result of the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, I and I, my church are one. I am bound to my church, my church is bound to me. What you do to the least of them, you now are doing to me. You're not simply persecuting the church. Saul, you are persecuting me, and then he blinds them. And Paul understood categorically why he was blinded. That's not just a, hmm, what should I do? Strike his leg, cut off his arm, or blind him. Jesus blinds him because God promised in the book of Isaiah that blindness would happen to Israel as a result of their unbelief. So here again in the middle of the full sun of daylight, Saul is blinded and in doing so, Jesus is saying to Saul, you understand what's going on here. You are spiritually blind. You do not yet see. And so he blinds them. And then a little while, He'll meet this guy named Ananias, the reluctant Ananias. Lord, I've heard about this guy. This guy's trouble. We don't do anything nice for this guy. And when Jesus says to Ananias, go, he says, go, for he is a chosen servant of mine, and I will show him, this is important, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So in Acts 9, Jesus lays down the idea of union with Christ, but he also commissions Saul and tells him that Saul is going to suffer for the name of Jesus. This is why, as you continue to read Paul, Saul's dead, Paul's now alive, everything he says, everything he says flows from his lips with the doctrine of the union with Christ. In fact, sometimes uh, Paul even says things that sound a bit schizophrenic. It's not very flattering. But when you think about it, uh, Paul says things like this. 
at the beginning of so many of letters, he says, I never cease to give thanks for you. I rejoice always on your behalf. Now, many people dismiss that as hyperbole. He says always, what he really means is frequently. He says, I never cease, but he doesn't really mean that everybody knows he has to take breaks. Or maybe he sees himself in union with the resurrected Christ who does what? Never ceases to pray on behalf of the church. Never ceases to give thanks on behalf of the church. Never ceases to rejoice on behalf of the church. And as Paul addresses the church, he speaks with a loving affection as though flowing from Christ himself. He goes even further. He says things that are almost wild. He says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. I, th I thought Jesus did that. What else does he say? <clears throat> he says, three times I asked the Lord uh, to take this cross from me, but the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for me. You're familiar with that. That's Jesus in the garden. Paul does this all over the place. He uses language that belongs, when we first hear it, to Christ himself, but you hear it now flowing from the lips of Paul because Paul has died and he sees his life through the lens of union with Christ and he understands that Christ has called him to not only display the gospel with his words, but also, and I think this is a key to the text, to display the gospel with his life. Paul will indeed become a minister of the gospel. And Paul will indeed proclaim the gospel with his words, but he will also proclaim the gospel with his life. You know what that means? It means that Jesus has designed, like a master artist, like a novelist, who has written the story of Paul's life in advance, has written it in such a way that Paul will bear in his body, as he says, 40 lashes minus one. We know someone else that happened to. He will go through a very a season of sufferings. And as he goes, those who visibly see his sufferings will see a reflection of Christ's sufferings in the life of Paul. Some women occasionally wear uh, these little brooches or uh, cameos, I'm forgetting the right word for them, around their necks has a little picture of a person on there. When you look at it, what you're seeing is a caricature of something that is real. That's exactly what is going on here with Paul. Jesus is the real thing, but Paul is now being conformed to the image of Christ in such a way that Christ's life will be reflected in the life of Paul. That is what it means for him to be united to Christ. And for this reason, he refers to himself now as a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. But something wonderful and amazing happens. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of this glory. Now if I were to ask for a show of hands, which I'm not, if anyone here has any Jewish background, I'd probably get a hand or two, but the rest of us are goyim, Gentiles, from the nations. How'd you get here? 
How'd you get folded into the family of God? How'd you become a partaker of the grace of God? Well, you know how it happened? God had a plan for you. And that plan involved that the gospel would not be just privately contained to the Jews, contained for the Jews and by the Jews, but in God's providence, it would go from them like a rock hitting the water, splashing to the ends of the world every nation, tribe, and tongue. And he said that this was his plan, that those from every nation, tribe, and tongue, Jew and Gentile, should be folded into the family of God. It's the marvelous mystery of the gospel, that the Gentiles should be brought in and become co-heirs with Christ. That's how you got here. Well, now let's go back to the unanswered question. What was Paul saying when he said he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, this is what he's saying. I think if you get this, it's beautiful. and also sets the stage for why are we here, which I think is becoming the most popular question everyone in the world is asking. Why am I here? What am I here for? What am I doing here? Right? So think about the life of Jesus. When he comes, who does he come and spend his time with? Well, he comes to the people of Israel He comes, as he refers to himself, to the lost house of Israel, and he proclaims primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to the lost house of Israel the nature and work of his kingdom. And that's what he does. The majority, not all of it, but the vast majority of Christ's earthly life is spent ministering to the Jews. When something happens in John 12, after the raising of Lazarus, When word gets out that Lazarus has been raised, some Gentiles come like a horde to see Jesus. And notice, Lazarus is the last miracle until the resurrection of Jesus himself. After Lazarus, there are no more miracles in the Gospel of John until Jesus is raised. But when these Gentiles show up and say, you know the phrase, sir, we want to see Jesus. Right, like every other pastor has that placarded on his pulpit. Sir, we would see Jesus. Jesus says, I'm done. My time has come. That's it. No more miracles, no more signs. That's all. So here then is the begging question What about the Gentiles? Who's going to take the gospel to them if Jesus is now done and he's done at the very point when the Gentiles come to see him? Who will carry the gospel forward to the ends of the earth so that the promises of the Old Testament, that the glory of God would be spread from shore to shore to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue? Who is going to carry that gospel? Well, that is where the Apostle Paul comes in. He comes in, he begins, he does not finish. But here's the point. All the other apostles are commissioned to go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. But I wondered if you noticed when Paul is commissioned, it is the reverse. He is to go to the Gentiles, to kings, and lastly, as though the last caboose, the people of Israel. He refers to himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. He refers to himself, rather strange language in Corinthians, as the apostle ectropho, it's an afterbirth term, it's a strange term, as though uh, this other thing came with those who were going, the apostles to the Jews, and then here comes Paul with a unique commission to the Gentiles, and that's exactly what he is saying. God called him to go to the nations, to go to the Gentiles, and that is what is unique about Paul and his calling. And with that calling, Jesus doesn't say, hey, look, you're going to take your book, 
You're going to preach, and it's going to go great. And everyone's going to love you because everybody loved me. It doesn't the exact opposite. You are going to go. And you're going to go to the nations. And they're going to not love you because they did not love me. But I have my own people, and they will hear my voice. And they will come in. But you will proclaim the gospel, Paul, not only with your words, but also with your deed. Your very life will be a dramatization of the gospel itself. And that's what he's talking about. What Jesus began in his earthly life, Paul is now filling up in his life, carrying the gospel to the Gentiles. Because God has chosen to make known to the nations the riches of the glory of this mystery, and here it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What happened to Paul, in a certain sense, is unique, but I want to just kind of pull back on something. My experience is that people uh, abuse what happened to Paul in two ways. The first is the charismatic abuse, and this is to say uh, people who believe that they themselves are going to have an Apostle Paul-like Damascus Road conversion experience, or even worse, they refer to themselves as apostles. Whenever I hear that, like, I want to duck because I'm looking for lightning. Uh, you're not an apostle unless you saw the resurrected Lord, and if you think you have, uh, we have a soft padded room for you someplace nearby. <clears throat> so the Damascus Road is not the norm of the Christian life. Most people are not converted with flashing light, seeing Jesus himself being blinded for a couple days and then being healed. And most people don't handle snakes, as Paul also did, and walked away alive and all raised the dead, right? Uh, so we can knock that off. But do we overreact? Does our pendulum swing, perhaps so far, as to say that Paul was so unique that nothing that happened to him belonged to us? It's all or nothing. You're an apostle or nothing. And notice what he says here, that the mystery of the glory of God that's been revealed to the nations is bound up in this idea, Christ in you. He's not referring to himself, not to Paul, but Christ in his church. So that what has happened to Christ, this is the gospel, right? Has happened for the church, not just for Paul. And the very same gospel that has happened for the church in the life of Christ is attached to the commission to carry that gospel to the ends of the earth. So that the very same things that are going on in so many ways in Paul's life that display the words and works of Jesus' life, beloved, that's in you. Do you know why? Because you who are united to him are united to his mission. Full stop, period, underscore. You who are united to Christ are united to his mission somehow in some way. You don't have to be an apostle. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a missionary. But if you are in Christ, you are a part of his commission, his mission that he is fulfilling in and through his church. Paul will say to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. And we need to sober up to this. You feel the reality and the pressure that more and more the world's disdain, dislike, distrust 
opposition to the gospel, to the work of the church, to the definition of the family, to the idea of truth, to all things we hold as good and beautiful according to the word of God. Uh, The world is squeezing in on that and it is saying, not okay. It doesn't simply have a passive, we're not interested posture. It's on a missionary attack against the gospel. The world at times produces better missionaries than we do anti-gospel missionaries. So if you are united to Christ, you are bound up in his mission. You are united to him not only for your justification, sanctification, adoption, and glorification. You are united to him in his mission to bring his gospel, his glory to the ends of the earth. Until you know that and are striving to fulfill your part in that, you will not be satisfied because you're satisfying for just a little bit less than what you were designed to actually be. Because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution for his name's sake. So what does that mean in a very practical way? Well, as one theologian sends it, says it rather fantastically, all of us are called in to this mission that is here described. That means that we are either sending or being sent. Now, if you can come up with a third category that's biblical, I want to hear about it, okay? I'll, need, I'll eat another one of those horrible things that were put in my mouth by one of your teenagers this afternoon, some little dark-colored mint. <laughs> I should have never trusted the look in his eye. <clears throat> you are either sending, and that is part of your task, or you are being sent, but everyone is in this story. Everyone is in this story. Uh, What Paul says is unique to him. There are some things that are unique to him, the charismatic aspect, but the mission itself of carrying the gospel to the ends of the world, that is the mission of the church, that is why we are here, and while we still have breath, talent, life, we have something to do. A couple nights ago, I read from Colossians 4. I want you to turn there with me just briefly now. Notice I didn't say, and in conclusion, because that would have been slightly misleading. But in Colossians 4, I'm now defending this idea that the mission given to Paul is being handed off to the church. So Paul uses this language, beginning at chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. If you read through the words of Paul here and elsewhere, it's very clear that he is drawing the Colossian members into the mission of Paul's work, bringing the gospel uh, to wherever Christ will send him. And he says, part of the way that you send me is to pray for me. Pray for us. Pray that we will be bold. Pray that God will give us opportunity. Pray that God will open doors where we can share the gospel. Pray for us. We pray for those whom we send. We support them. We pray for them. It's a bound relationship. But you would think at this point I'd be really nice to you and say, and that's all we need to do. Just sign a check and you're good to go. Pray, put up the prayer cards, and everyone can just kind of rest and say, ah, that's not too hard. That's kind of easy, isn't it? 
I, I mean, I hope that's the easy part. But there's more. Verse 5. I read this a couple nights ago. I want you to wrestle with this text. I think this is an important text for our theme for the weekend, which is that of evangelism. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I've studied this quite a bit. I've preached this book twice, translated it, read commentaries, Dutch commentaries. I, I read the right ones. And I do not see a way around how this text would not apply to the whole church because he just made a clear distinction between those whom the Colossians should pray for, which is Paul in his unique office, as he says, pray for us, but then he says to them, change of person, uh, and you, second person, walk in wisdom, and that very important adjective, toward those who are outside. Part of the calling of the church is to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. If your life's mission has been to run from the world and isolate yourself from the world, something has been askew and we need to straighten it out because it is very biblical and necessary to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. That's how the Great Commission works. The Great Commission fails if no one walks toward those who are outside. And it's not just the work of missionaries and pastors or apostles or crazy people from Florida to walk toward outsiders. Paul says this to the whole church. He says it to you. That you who are united to Christ for your justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification are united in his mission, and you are either sending or being sent. But you can't take a pass and say, okay, I'll just write a check and pray, but I'll never talk to anybody. When he says here, walk in wisdom, he doesn't say foolishly, toward outsiders, make the best use of your time, let your words be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know, so that you may know, friends, you who are unordained, not are spying to the mission field, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. This verse is in the Bible. This is our commission. This is our identity. Many people, sociologists, youth pastors, are making a very striking observation that many of our young people today feel under-challenged in the church. They feel entertained, but under-challenged. And what I like to do, this is my closing swan song, last speech, sometime soon I'll be flying away, assuming I survive the lake trial tomorrow. (laughs) What I would like to do is just lovingly, wholeheartedly challenge you to ask the question of yourself, your family, your church, where do you fit in to Christ's mission? Because if you've tried to take a comfortable pass, that's not okay. It's just simply not biblical. But where do you fit in? You're either sending or being sent. We're either walking in wisdom toward outsiders or we're walking foolishly away from them. Where do you fit in? Whether you are young or old, whether you are extroverted or introverted, whether you are, whether you are, whether you are, scrap all that. Because you are in Christ, this is who you are, and this is why you are here. It is what the Bible says about you. 
And if you don't know who you are, <clears throat> you have an awfully hard time finding peace. But when you know who you are, and you know what you're willing to live for, what you're willing to die for, where you are placed in this world, then with purpose, we can have passion, and with passion, we can have satisfaction, but those things must be defined by the gospel itself. So what is your place in this story? It's been my fantastic privilege to be here uh, for a couple of days and get to know you. This really has been a lot of fun. But beyond all the playfulness, I was asked by your elders earlier what's been some of the encouragement to me. One of the greatest encouragements to me has actually been uh, from some of the teenagers, not the ones trying to kill me, the other ones, <laughs> who have wanted to talk about some of the things they've heard that they actually found spiritually helpful and encouraging. And I have actually this strange confidence. I'm 47. I think of myself as younger than I am. But those who are half my age are going to be even more bold for the gospel than I have been. If you are my age or twice my age and you're bold for the gospel, praise God for that. But we all have a part in this. One of the most beautiful things I heard is a token of God's grace. This won't happen to everybody, but it was a beautiful thing. I gave a similar lecture uh, some time ago on the other side of the planet, by which I mean Hamilton. That's the way you describe it. I'm learning from you. <laughs> and after an evangelism speech, a little time went by, and I got an email from a young man who emailed me and said he heard the speech, sat in the back kind of quietly, uh, went home, prayed about it for a little while, decided he was going to get out of his vocation, uh, go to seminary, studied to be a pastor, wanted to do church planning and evangelism. I could have wept. Now listen. This is not a me trying to talk all the young men into going to seminary, but I wouldn't be disappointed if a few of you did. You have vacant churches. <clears throat> I hear about this all the time. Where are the young men in church now? Women outnumber men two to one, at least in the States. In the African-American church, my background, women outnumber men four to one. Where are the young men? Where are those who have a sense of calling <clears throat> to use all this crazy energy with passion for the gospel. You know, the lines between fun and foolishness and faith can be pretty thin. Fun to me could look pretty foolish to somebody else. I find doing evangelism kind of fun. Somebody else might say that takes great faith. Someone else might say it looks a little bit foolish. Why not be fools for Christ? and have great fun walking by faith and serving him. And even if you don't feel called, young men, to be missionaries or whatever, that's fine. Be godly men, raise your pastors. Young ladies, young and old, where are you stationed? What is your part in this story? What are you praying will happen in your church? How are you encouraging your leaders? What are you asking for? What are the right biblical versions of change where we need them that don't lead to rebellion where we don't? Where are you going? Because Paul says... And he didn't come up with it. It was given to him. God has a mission for his church. I'm going to end with just a thought or two, and that's almost a promise, but I'm not usually good at keeping those, at least when I say I'm almost done. Okay. <clears throat> Sometimes I hear this rather regrettable language. When a church refers to itself as being a missional church, okay, there is no such thing as a missional church. That is an unhelpful distinction. Do you know why? Because if you are a church, by definition, you are still on mission. To be a missional church is like saying I'm a female lady. 
That doesn't sound right for me to say that. It's redundant. The church, by definition, is on mission. There is no such thing as a missional church. Every church is a missional church, and every believer has a part in that mission. Whatever it is, whether called to go, called to preach, called to be faithful, to weekly do the things that we weekly do. Beloved, where do you see yourself in the story of the kingdom of God and its unfolding? Power, power of the gospel being proclaimed to the ends of the earth. The last note that I want to make is where Paul ends himself, where he says, him we proclaim. Christ is being proclaimed. And not only is Christ being proclaimed, he's being proclaimed as we warn, as we teach with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And here's the phrase I love so much. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Now, last night, uh, I, I played one of these games over here to the point of wondering if I needed my asthma inhaler. <clears throat> Thankfully, nobody got a picture of that. And I marveled at how much energy was being spent out there chasing this little ball and whacking it as hard as one could towards this, you know, towards this goal or whacking the visiting pastor one or the other. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What would happen if people from this church, in my church, me, use this energy that we use so passionately for other things if we use that same energy for the kingdom of God and the spread of the gospel? That'd be big. And when he says, with his energy that he powerfully works within me. Do you know he's referring to? The Greek behind this makes it very clear. He's referring to the resurrection. Here's the point. The resurrected Jesus Christ, in the power of the resurrection, continues what he began to do. What he began to do in his earthly life was spread the gospel from shore to shore, what he continues to do through the resurrection is empower the church with the power of the resurrection that raises the dead to take that gospel to the ends of the earth and all the church is, as was Paul, as is whoever happens to be standing here, is the voice of Christ to the world. Could he have done it some other way? Of course. Could he just speak down from heaven to the world if he wanted to? Of course. But he chose Paul. He chose the church. And he chooses you because you are a missional church by definition. And therefore, part of what he is doing is displaying not only the sufferings of Christ, but the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in and through the church as the church takes the gospel to all the world and dead people come to life to the spreading of the gospel. And you and I have the privilege, the joy, as Paul put it, of participating in that. And if you should suffer for that, beloved, <clears throat> if your energy should be spent for that, wouldn't that be a joyful thing? What would you rather be spent for? One day, all of us are going to be looking in a rearview mirror saying, yeah, that's what, I, that's, that's, that's what I did. And I'm not saying if you're not being a missionary or pastor, you're doing the wrong thing. I don't believe that at all. I believe in the Protestant work ethic wholeheartedly. 
But wherever you are, whoever you are, you've been stationed by Christ to be faithful there, and the Great Commission uh, is flowing through you because you are a part of his church and you are united to him. It's just how it works. Why not be spent for him and be able to say with Paul, I rejoice because my life is being spent serving Christ, however he would have you serve. You know how he's dealing with you in your own heart. However he would be pleased to display the glory of his gospel in your life, what better thing could you suffer for, what better thing could you be spent for than for Christ himself, who spent himself serving you and loves you and is with you always, to the end of the age, when he will wrap you up in his arms and say the mission is done, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of your rest. It's time to come home. But until then, you, my friends, are on a mission. Let's pray.